you'd get like the big former ex-cop with his tucked in t-shirt and his big belt buckle. <laughs> I grew up in the era of scared straight. Yeah, me too. I remember all those assholes that would kick in the door and go, you think you're fucking gonna be somebody? And you're like, why are you yelling, man? <laughs> it's fucking nine in the morning. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 12, Love in a State of Emergency. Canadians have this idea of ourselves. It's an advertisement we beam out to the world, and a lullaby we sing to ourselves at night. Canada the good. A country built on pluralism, tolerance, and equality. But you can't understand our overdose crisis without knowing the truth about this country. And that's the story of colonization a centuries-long effort to steal land and erase Indigenous peoples. Canada's first prohibition law was written into the Indian Act in 1884. The government made it a crime for Indigenous people to buy or drink alcohol, or even go into a bar. If you did, you could go to jail or get a big fine, half of which would go to whoever snitched on you. The alcohol ban was all about social control. Kwakwakiwa author Bob Joseph writes that the government of the day believed, quote, if Indians were able to access alcohol, they wouldn't be diligently working their farmland. Of course, prohibiting alcohol didn't end drinking. It just made it riskier. It made people more likely to drink the hard stuff, to drink in secret, and to drink fast. And Joseph says it also maintained the myth that Indigenous people couldn't handle alcohol. But the Indian Act wasn't just about booze. It outlawed traditional forms of governance, like the potlatch. It empowered police to seize regalia, masks, blankets, and other ceremonial items. It also empowered the state to seize indigenous kids and to lock them in church-run residential schools. The abuse in these schools was notorious and rampant. Down the generations, this adds up to a lot of damage. And people, any people, are sometimes going to try to self-medicate that damage. Today, Indigenous people are disproportionately harmed by the overdose crisis. They were over four times more likely to die of an overdose than the rest of the population, according to 2018 stats. So some people have started to rethink how their communities deal with the crisis. And one of those people is my friend Ryan. Well, I think we got a good level. Could you introduce yourself for the tape? Sure. Um, my name is Ryan McMahon. Um, I'm a writer and a comedian. Uh, based out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, originally from uh, Kuchiching First Nation in northwestern Ontario, Treaty 3 uh, territory. Ryan makes one of my favorite podcasts, a show called Thunder Bay. It's full of infuriating and heartbreaking stories of racism in one northern Ontario city. Ryan's show disrupts the Canadian lullaby, and it shows the kind of terror and hostility that Indigenous people still face in Canada. Just to set this up, I'm going to kind of roll back to a conversation we had last year. And we were chatting on DMs, and then we hopped on the phone. And you were kind of just responding to the first few episodes of the podcast. And you were saying, you know, you'd traveled to a lot of different communities, and you'd seen sort of um, an on-reserve reticence about harm reduction. Is that Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, one of the big privileges I have in this weird job is is the opportunity to travel um and to you know 
all far reaches of, of, of this country. And at that time when we had that conversation, I had just left a couple of communities where this was an ongoing conversation. It's something that I've seen maybe as a, as a growing trend. And it's something that is, you know, as far as I, I'm concerned, is, is troubling. I come from a long line of addicts. Um, you know, both my parents were uh, drug addicts and, and alcoholics. My uncles, my aunts, I mean, I was basically raised inside of AA. Um, I remember sitting in smoke-filled rooms. I'm five, six, sitting on, on, on those wooden chairs that you would see at an arena, at a wooden table, ashtrays overfilling, coffee flowing. You know, the big Saturday night dinner that they would serve, there was always what was called a speaker. And that speaker would be sort of the, the headliner <laughs> for, all, for all the alcoholics. And the speaker usually was, you know, dead funny. Um, some person who's had a, a, a rough go at life talking about the times they, they shit their pants in the back of a cop car and, and hearing all these people laugh going, uh, recognizing, I shit my pants too, and I, I, if you can quit, I can quit. And there's this weird, beautiful, powerful camaraderie around like these alcoholics and these addicts coming together to fight for each other. So is this where you got your sort of comedy influences from? How you present is like this is your influences from AA speakers? Absolutely, I would be bullshitting you if I if I told you different. Yeah. <laughs> Being raised in that world and understanding that that's what saved my parents' life really helped me appreciate the struggle of the addict. And it's, it's something that um, I, remember, I remember the love and the sort of the compassion and the nurturing that was happening there amongst people. I went to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting around 1997. And just like the meetings Ryan grew up with, it's what they call a 12-step program. Originally, this method came out of a Christian organization. At first, it was just for alcoholism, but then it was adapted for drugs, gambling, sex, you name it. 12-step is an abstinence-based approach, which means you gotta stop using drugs, or at least you gotta be working on it. At my first NA meeting, they walked us through the steps. You start by admitting you're powerless over your addiction, and then you turn your life over to God or to some kind of higher power as you understand it. And then you make what they call a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. It's kind of a quest to find the defects of character that have messed you all up. And then you ask your God or higher power to help you purge those character defects. I was skeptical about all this, so I did try. I attended around 50 meetings, but I never got past the first couple of steps, and I never really racked up any clean time. But I get why Ryan liked being in these rooms. I like things about them too. I like that there was no social worker, no authority figure in charge of everything. Meetings were run by people who'd been through the same kind of shit that I had.
there's no drinking allowed in the dance group. And to be a dancer, you really have to believe in what you're doing. This clip is from a 1985 documentary film called The Honor of All, the story of Alkali Lake. In the interior of BC, Alkali Lake is now known as Esketum First Nation. And they produced this film to tell the story of the community's approach to recovery. Brother Ed Lynch, a Catholic oblate and AA counselor from Williams Lake, was out here all the time trying to get an AA program started on the reserve. But everybody pretty much ignored him until Phyllis quit drinking. It's good to see you, Phyllis. How are you and Andy doing? Making any progress? I quit drinking now. Eskedem's plan was pretty drastic. They outlawed public drinking. They gave some drinkers vouchers for food and clothing instead of income assistance checks. And they threw the white bootleggers off the reserve. Eskedem also created their own kind of treatment program. There were 12-step meetings, but also a sweat lodge, a Sequatmuk language program, and a traditional dance group. When I joined the dance group, I was told not to drink or talk up. That's what I liked about it. I started in 78, eight years ago. It's a great honor and a lot of fun being a dancer. The Alkali Lake story became a bit of a sensation. According to a 1989 Alcoholism Treatment Quarterly article, quote, at every health conference, locally and nationally, tribal leaders, tribal health directors, and other healthcare providers are all discussing the phenomenon at Alkali Lake. What's happening in Alkali Lake can take place anywhere on Mother Earth with any members of the human family who are ready to make a real step towards the development of their people. Other communities did similar kinds of things. They put the standard 12-step approach into a new context. Sobriety became a part of cultural healing and tradition. This is sometimes called the Red Road. They started to adopt things like the you know, the seven grandfather teachings and sort of transposing them onto the 12 steps or looking at the 12 steps through an indigenous lens to kind of make it a little bit more familiar. Um, though I think at the, at the backbone of it is, is still giving your life to God, um, understanding that there's a power higher than you. And so I think that's where the red road stuff came in. They're like, okay, well, we won't call him Jesus Christ. We'll call him the creator. And everyone's like, I like that. What else can we, how else can we change this shit up? But there are some parts of 12 step that are harder to change. Things that are right at its core. Maybe the most controversial thing about programs like AA and NA is the absolutism. You're either clean or you're using. There's no middle ground. There's no room for less risky drinking or drug use. And there's no room for treatments like methadone. I know people who find this kind of moral clarity helpful. But for many others, this kind of absolutism can make you feel like a failure. Uh, when I was a teenager, you know, I so desperately wanted to be a powwow guy. Because I wasn't raised that way. But I love the powwow. And... I wanted to start powwow singing in particular. And I started going to the Friendship Center in my hometown to learn. And, um, and so we would get these things, they would, they would call them drum teachings. And these drum teachings are all like meant to be sort of guideposts and rules for us to live with as singers, as those with that responsibility. 
And um, in those drum teachings, it, abstinence to, to, from drugs and alcohol was tantamount to your participation. And then there were rules like, well, if you do drink, you can't be around the drum for four days after. <laughs> it's like, okay, four days, all right. Why, why four days though, right? Uh, at that time, I was definitely drinking, um, being a teenager. And, um, and so the powwow was not for me. You know, it kept me outside of the circle. And then, then I started to have to lie. Oh yeah, no, I'm sober. I, I don't drink. Because I wanted to be at the powwow. I wanted to be at the drum. I was attracted to what it was teaching me about myself, what I was learning about my culture and our history. And, and I would, yeah, I'd tell everybody I was sober. I was on the red road that I was, you know, being a, a good Nishinaabe nini. And I started to think about it like, this is supposed to be a positive thing in my life, but I'm living a lie. And it's just alcohol. It's just, it's, I'm just having beers, you know? That's such a fucked up way to live and, and a way to be and in a, in a way to force people to live, you know? Because you got to carry the shame and the guilt of the lying on top of all the other shit. Right. And, and really, all you're just trying to do is get your life together just be a good person i just this is brings me great joy to be here and then you start getting into this like this like other layer of shame where you're like oh my spirit helpers are gonna turn their back on me because i'm a bad indian because i'm a liar now and i'm a drinker oh shit maybe that's attracting bad medicine and that's what people will start telling you Ryan says that shame ultimately kept him away for some time, but he never gave up learning about his culture. He carries a traditional bundle now. It is a drum, a pipe, feathers, and other items he's been gifted over the years. He tells us that there's this Anishinaabe concept that's really important to him, the good life. It's something you always search for, but likely never find. The important thing is that you strive for it. For Ryan, in part, this meant developing a healthier relationship with booze. I don't consider myself an alcoholic or a, a drug addict per se but um, th there's a period of time where my drinking uh, and drug use was definitely out of control and definitely attached to my my childhood trauma definitely attached to you know my unresolved shit and so we gave it up for nearly a decade now he only drinks occasionally and in moderation and even though Ryan's in a different place now he's never forgot that sense of alienation he had as a teenager I was asked to MC of a, a fairly large powwow, and as the MC, you are the conductor. You are you are telling everyone which way to go, how things are going to roll out throughout the day. You're the guy with the microphone, and um, and people will come up to the MC stand and ask you to make announcements and say, "Hey, can you remind people at three o'clock this is happening?" And I get a bang on the back door, and it's somebody that's come in and said, "There's a handful of drunk men here at this." this powwow and call security and what that means at some powwows is like there's a volunteer community security thing but what it means at other powwows there are police and I f will not call the police 
on some people that have drank too much. So I told those ladies, absolutely do not call the police. And, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll talk to the guys. And so by the time I got there, the security at the powwow had already sort of confiscated these guys' bottles, you know, have, were sort of like physically, you know, pushing them out of the powwow space. So you, get, you have to leave. You can't be here. And, uh, and I, just, I stopped them and I just said, you know, I don't think you should be physically removing these guys. There's a reason they want to be here. And I asked the security to, to reconsider, to, to reconsider removing them. And, um, and this caused a big, big problem. You know, I was called, I'm a visitor, so it's not my community. I'm called aside and told that the way they handle things is zero tolerance. And we call this powwow a healing ceremony. We call this a, an opportunity for the community to come together and heal. Why does it make sense that these men who clearly need help, who've come here to do that healing, we remove them. This powwow should be full of drunks. We hear these tricky words in native communities, words like traditional. You know, if you're traditional, you don't do this, or if you're traditional, you don't do that. But I think that this conversation around abstinence is really influenced by Christianity. That learning and that, that set of learned values and behaviors has really been transposed onto indigenous folks from the church, from colonization. Like that tough love approach. Yeah, I, do, I don't... I think a tough love approach is probably an indigenous approach. I mean, that's what Nanabuju and trickster stories teach you all about, tough love. There's a lesson to be learned every single time. Um, and I think that's what tough love can do for us. But I don't know if I don't know if if it's tough love people are after. I think it's tough shit. Get the fuck out. And it's not necessarily those communities' fault. They are heartbroken. They are struggling through the realities of residential school and colonialism and poverty and it's hard to love when you live in a constant state of emergency I'm not indigenous, but my niece and nephew's grandfather, their Musham, was Cree from Manitoba. Reg is gone now, otherwise I'd probably have him on this episode. Though, who knows, he might have told me and my mic to get lost. Reg had been to residential school. He walked the Red Road and he went to AA, and he was proud of his many sober years. So he used to make a real effort not to be messed up around him. That wasn't always easy, because he lived a few blocks from me and I was wired on heroin. But I felt like I owed him the respect to at least try. Total abstinence never worked out for me. But I know it's really important to lots of people. And I've always wished there was a bridge between abstinence and harm reduction. Bannock, Bannock for a dollar. Bannock for a dollar. Oh, yes. I don't even know that if I introduce myself really to you guys. My name is Tracy Morrison. I'm an Ojibwe woman from uh, northwestern Ontario. And I've been here in downtown Eastside for um, 
since 96. The tape you're hearing was recorded by our producer, Alex Kim, a few years ago. Around the hood, Tracy was known as the Bannock Lady. She'd sell fry bread that she'd made herself off a little wagon. Tracy always used to meet me with a hug, a really genuine hug, not the kind of pro forma, mandatory, fake closeness you sometimes get in Vancouver. She somehow intuitively knew when I needed it. And when I heard she died, it was like a cinder block in the guts. This wasn't just a personal loss. It's a loss for our whole community. Tracy was a force to be reckoned with. Um, some people, even the elders, say this is sick land, meaning it's, it's bad lands, right? I'm like, yeah, it could be, but you know, how sick can it be when I've, this is where I found compassion, friendship, family, uh, love, hope, faith in people. This is where I found it. This is the best neighborhood in the whole world, I swear, it is. That wind is a bite to it, but I got, yeah, I got layers. Yeah. I was a kid in Yellowknife, you know, uh, <laughs> all right. Tracy was also the president of an organization called the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, or WARS. It's an organization that tries to forge connections between red road abstinence and drug user activism. Earlier this month, I hung out with some WARS organizers as they did outreach. Okay, you guys. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> you guys need a 4x4. Four four. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. No tires on you. We'll just go up and down <laughs> the uh, streets here. Yeah, go back yeah. there. This month, it snowed a lot in Vancouver. That doesn't happen often. When it does, it basically shuts the city down. Buses don't really run, schools are closed, and the news says to stay off the roads. But Wars is still out there doing their thing. We're walking down Hastings Street. The snow makes the journey feel treacherous, especially for Curtis, who's pulling a big wagon with an urn full of hot chocolate behind him. We'll get through that hot chocolate before we hit the end of the block. Wars activists carry backpacks filled with little Ziploc bags. They're full of crack pipes, syringes, cookers, foil, push sticks, and water. If you mention harm reduction on my reserve, they'd be like, get out. Oh, well, we don't have anything to do with that. And yet, you know, this is Wars treasure, Linda Steinhauer. Linda's a Cree woman in her early 60s. Linda and her family moved to Vancouver in the 90s. She used drugs, but didn't hang out in the hood. She says she started to come down here because of her son. I used to look out my window. I lived on Main and First at the time, and I could see downtown east side. Beautiful, beautiful view. I thought, where in the world is my son out there? Where are you, Joe? Every once in a while, he'd pop up, but I guess he was getting really into the drugs. In 2016, as the OD crisis was really picking up steam, Linda's son, Joe, worked at the OPS. Linda says she would sometimes pick him up after his shift, and one day he asked her, why don't you come down here and help us out? But the idea made her nervous. He says, Mom, which is so scared of? I'm going to be there. Nobody will bother you. I don't know what the hell I was so damn scared of, but I guess, I don't know, just that's not the way I grew up, and I'm not used to so much of that being around me, the, you know, drug use and all that. But Joe showed Linda how to use naloxone, and he convinced her to come do an OPS shift with him. At that time, the site was just a tent and a trailer. One night, the place was a bit understaffed. Linda and Joe were the only people working in the trailer. Linda says she was really nervous that if anyone OD'd, she'd mess something up. And then it happened. A guy went down. And Joe sprang into action and Narcaned him. But then another guy went down, almost right away. This time, Linda stuck him with the Narcan. 
After that, Linda says she was less afraid, but always alert. It means to me that I found out what a, a community it is on the downtown east side, how misunderstood it is by people that live on the outside and just from the outside looking in. And uh, I just, you know, there's so much love down here, there's so much family. When Joe was living down here, just down um, that street, as a matter of fact, not this one, but he, he lived in a, one of Lookout's SROs. And so, you know, I got to spend his last night with him. He was there, we were there, and uh, we were having a couple of drinks. And then about 12.30, he left and he said, I'll be right back, and put his finger up. I said, oh, okay. So, he never came back. And 8.30 they found him. 10.30 the police were knocking on my door. Yeah. Shortly after Joe died, Trey Helton and Sean Heff painted a mural in the alley outside of the OPS. It was a gigantic, colorful image of an angel holding a drug user in his arms. There was a banner above that read, For the loved ones we have lost. Trey painted a scroll into the mural and a list of names. Joe's is the third one down. Linda says, whenever possible, she likes to take people to see it. Just to, you know, show that, yeah, I've, we have lost, a lot of us have lost children and family members. Doing this outreach here, what do you, what do you hope happens from it? Well, my heart goes out to these people. If I were down and out like this, or if this were happening to me in my life, I would love to have somebody come along and care, care enough to give me clean supplies or just even talk to me for a few minutes or just for organizations to be there and you know who you could turn to if you needed help. For people, when they talk about their families and how their, their parents were raised in residential school, how you were, the reserves were developed and how you had to stay there and you weren't allowed out and out of the reserve and you had to, couldn't speak your own language. So they're, they're having to deal with a lot of I don't know, a lot of hurt and pain. And we have to just try and keep an eye on everybody. You know, that's, that's the main thing around here is just making sure that so-and-so, you know, has been checked on. Or have you seen so-and-so, you know? Is there any love? Yeah, army doctor. No, I don't need that. No, I'm going to quit speed today. I'll grab them. Can I need a light though from somebody? Yeah. Okay. I'll have a hot talk. How are you doing? Could you introduce yourself for the tape? My name is Shelda Carson, and I'm a Chapowitz from the Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, and I'm a longtime member of, of lots of organizations in the downtown east side. Well, thanks for... Me to my <laughs> <laughs> thanks for talking to us, Shelda. Um, so we're doing this episode on colonization, the overdose crisis, and we've been talking to you as an editorial board member right from the beginning about what direction we want to take. And you told us, look at abstinence, look at the connection to the church, look at the red road, look at harm reduction, look at the bridge in between. So we've been trying to do that. But just for people who maybe don't know, can you explain what it is, what colonization and the overdose crisis feels like to you? Like, how have you experienced it? Uh, well, uh, the reason... Um the reason a lot of people use is you have to you can't just just uh heal the heal the uh the addiction you got to heal a person and with the natives it's particularly to the all the years of colonization 
that, that has happened to them. The, 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 their being, I guess, is broken. You know what I mean? They're broken people. Shelda was taken from her family when she was young and adopted by white people. This also happened to another Crackdown editorial board member, Jeff Loudon. These weren't isolated incidents. They're part of a decades-long policy we now call the 60s Scoop. The 60s Scoop continued a process that residential schools started, an intentional planned effort to kill the culture and assimilate indigenous children. I was one of the world's biggest apples. <laughs> so can you explain to people what an apple is? It's right on the outside and white right in the middle. I was so ashamed because I grew up around white people all my life and I was always picked on and bullied, but that's why I'm a little, a little scrapper now. <laughs> Once I went east of Camby, I thought my life was, I'd hit rock bottom. But I can't afford to rent anymore and well, you know, in the West End and stuff like that. And I kept moving further, but I realized what a great community it is down here and that I had a purpose. So let me let me ask this then. Um, you were adopted by a white family and how did you did you like make um, reconnect with culture through the work around here? Yes. I went to a program at Wish it was it was for indigenous women it was it was it had to do with cultural and arts, and wow, that's when I found myself and I made um, cedar bracelets and, and did beading and yeah, we made their drums and yeah, that's that's when I was born. You've actually co-authored a lot of research on the intersection between the overdose crisis and uh, like racism against indigenous people, eh? Yeah. yeah. I think I, I've been part of four or five of them. Um, some of our key findings, the first one is uh, Canada's drug overdose crisis disproportionately affects Indigenous peoples o- owing to a legacy of colonization, racism, and intergenerational trauma. And, uh, and what's, the next, what's the next one there? Harm reduction and addiction treatment uh, must integrate culture and traditional Indigenous values. And then what's the last one? Um, decolonization must include in ending the war on drugs and addressing underlying structural conditions that produce drug-related harms, including overdose. Thank you for talking to us, yeah, Shelda. Not a problem. I think it's a complicated conversation to have because... This is Jennifer Lavalle. She's a research coordinator at the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use and a PhD student at the University of British Columbia. Because, especially, and this is, this is coming from my context... This idea of abstinence-based models, and then also this idea of harm reduction, have also have always been talked as something that are different ends of the spectrum. So trying to unpack that, especially with Indigenous folks, is very complicated. For us, we've seen our communities devastated by substance use-related harms. So it's hard. It's hard to bring up. It's hard to bring up to our families who are dealing with the everyday realities of of addiction. Jennifer is Cree Soto Metis. She grew up with her mom, an addictions treatment counselor in Regina, Saskatchewan. And she says that she's always had access to ceremony. Uh, sweats, other cultural activities. And I think part of that was my mom's attempt to raise us without shame, that she was raised with a lot of shame growing up. As a young adult, Jennifer started to do frontline work with sex workers, indigenous kids, and people who use drugs. She says she started to see the same thing happen over and over. When a lot of Indigenous people would, that I would work with would try to get access to 
culture or try to reconnect with their communities. There was always this same thing would play out. If you're not sober, if you're not abstaining, there was um, a lack of access to be able to actually connect back with not only culture, but communities and family. I decided to take my master's in social work in Calgary. And it became very apparent to me that research was dominated by a certain voice. It was dominated by, I guess, Western ideologies and assumptions. And it was at that moment I started to connect more with Indigenous-based ways of doing research and later led me to this position. When Jennifer started working at BCCSU, she joined an ongoing research project. Instead of parachuting in and extracting knowledge from Indigenous drug users, the researchers partnered with WARS. The drug user activists selected the research questions, they designed the study's methods, and they led data collection. WARS decided they didn't want to do traditional academic interviews. Instead, they held group discussions called talking circles. And they chose to focus these discussions on their own experience with treatment. Almost always, that was a standard 12-step program. The core question would be, what are Indigenous peoples' experience with mainstream substance use treatment programs? So as of right now, our preliminary findings, which are under review, um, mostly reveal that participants viewed and thought of mainstream substance use treatment as, I guess, ineffective environments for recovery. The talking circles revealed that it often took a long time to get into treatment when people wanted it. And that isn't surprising. Studies show that Indigenous people also face more barriers in accessing methadone, suboxone, and pain meds. The talking circles also mentioned that treatment programs often focused very narrowly on drugs and booze. They didn't do anything to address people's experience with residential school, the 60s scoop, or intergenerational trauma. And then there was the kids. If families are involved with social services, a lot of the one of the big requirements is that a family or a caregiver is not allowed to use. And so in order to actually keep their kids, folks would be forced into these very incompatible treatment models. And so there was a lot of ties to, and similarities to the residential school experience. The circle also talked about what treatment could be. One woman said, quote, I dreamed I had a longhouse. People can come and me and my daughters and my granddaughters will greet people. We would have horses and geese and natural foods. She said this would be a place for building cabins, carving, beating, and praying to the creator. So a space where they could have access to culture. And for many people, recovery did not mean abstaining from drugs and alcohol. Recovery simply meant reducing harms related to substance use. There's actually quotes of people saying harm reduction is my treatment. A lot of people spoke about their experience accessing Vendu, so accessing peer-led programming as being part of their recovery. And I think like while mainstream harm reduction practices and policies, like they're important, right? It's um, like such as naloxone distribution and opioid replacement therapies, all this is important. But I think when we talk about indigenizing harm reduction, it kind of addresses broader systems of oppression. 
Um, it's, it's way bigger. It's reducing harm of colonialism, you know? Hey. Hi, guys. Sorry I'm late. Oh, I just got here a second ago. That extra snow slowed things down. Yeah, me too. Grand Chief Doug Kelly is president of the Stalo Tribal Council, and he served in lots of leadership positions over his life. In addition to that, I'm a grandfather, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, I'm a whole bunch of things. So this is why we schedule interviews at uh, 8.30 in the morning. It makes sense. <laughs> works for me if it works for you, guys. Definitely. Uh, thanks for making the time. Uh, and I mean, full disclosure to our audience, I actually worked for you for a time. And uh, that was when I was using heroin. So apologies if the work was ever inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize. And you must have been able to manage pretty well. I didn't notice. Ah, the, the, the cover worked. The ruse was effective. <laughs> and sometimes people are very creative when they need to have ruses. And some cope very well, some do not. So no need to apologize, Garth, none, none whatsoever. Back in the day, Doug hired me to do some research. He loaned me a laptop and had me write up a paper. It was about health outcomes for First Nations in BC and how they're worse than for the population in general. This report was just a small part of a fight Doug's been involved in for a long time. The struggle to take control over health programs back from Ottawa. And that's ultimately what happened. He was a big part of the establishment of a new indigenous-led organization called the First Nations Health Authority. When I worked for Doug, I was pretending not to be wired, so I never asked him about harm reduction. If I had, I would have discovered that he wasn't a big fan. I have family members suffering with various forms of addictions, and it's my extended family. I have a huge family on both sides of my family. And so I see alcoholism. I see addictions to heroin. I see addictions to other substances. And when it comes to family members, my first response was, abstain, don't do it. And I began to try to create incentives for them to stay clean, to stay sober, to stay away from the drug or alcohol of their choice. Like what kind of thing? Um, helping them. If, if they were struggling to put food on the table, I put food on their table. If they were struggling uh, to find a job, I helped them find a job. If they were struggling in whatever way, I'd create usually financial because that's, that's what does it, right? There was one relative that Doug was really worried about. He thought they might have turned a corner. It seemed like things were going okay. But then... That's when that beloved family member went back to that life. And I was torn. I was torn. At that time and place, I wanted to throttle the person that invented naloxone. Because I saw that as a means to continue behavior that was hurting my beloved family member and took them off the pathway to where they needed to be. That was the anger of the moment. And when we're angry, we're not rational. I don't know what your editorial board, I know you know me a little bit. I'm a vocal leader. And so I've always had the answers. And I had to come to terms with the limits of being a family member that has no control, 
no influence, no ability to change the behavior of a beloved family member. After the anger subsided, Doug said he was left with a question. What would actually help this person? What do they need? And honestly, conditional love doesn't work. It doesn't work. So if we want to help our loved ones, we've got to get to that place of unconditional love, which means harm reduction. In the summer of 2017, Doug wrote an op-ed for the Globe and Mail called The Hidden Complexities in Substance Use. He said he'd recently changed his mind about harm reduction. Doug writes, quote, Many of us may give up on our loved ones, thinking we've done our best. With failure, we decide to quit on them. Instead of giving up on our black and white resolution of abstinence and looking for a different approach. When I read this op-ed, I thought, shit, this is a big deal. Doug's voice carries a lot of weight around here. And maybe other people will be moved by his change of heart. What is, uh, what is, um... Co-Salish harm reduction look like to you? Well, I'm one of many Co-Salish leaders, so you're probably going to get different responses, and I'm okay with that. I'll tell you what it means to me. I saw it late yesterday afternoon at the gathering. The Sinchothan, they're Co-Salish. They have an immersion school. They're teaching at preschool, at kindergarten, and uh, elementary school levels. Sanchathan to their children in immersion. And those children are vibrant. They're shining. They know who they are. They know where they come from. They know their ancestral teachings because they know their language. So language that is harm reduction. Is harm reduction, Garth. Thanks, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Garth. I appreciate the opportunity. And I'm really happy that you're doing well for yourself. There's a lot of inspiring work going on today. Culture Saves Lives on Vancouver's downtown east side helps reconnect people to cultural teachings, ceremony, smudging, and the drum circle. Abstinence not required. The Blood Tribe declared a health emergency in 2015 and started distributing naloxone kits. Musqueam has an annual harm reduction conference where they train members to reverse ODs and hand out lawn signs that say, Stop. I have naloxone here. Many people reject harm reduction as a half measure. And the thing is, they're not wrong. Harm reduction is only first aid, triage. Of course the overdose crisis is our immediate concern. It is the emergency, and we'll never just stand by and let our friends and family die preventable deaths. But we're fighting for a deeper, more fundamental transformation. Racism and colonialism are the beating heart of the drug war. So any approach to the overdose crisis that doesn't seek to smash white supremacy, it ain't worth shit.
Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. This month, editorial board member Shelda Castor provided invaluable advice and direction to me and the production team. Thank you, Shelda. We'd also like to thank Mesketum for letting us use clips from their film. Also check out Bob Joseph's 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Sharice Kiwatton. R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown senior producer is Sam Fenn. Our producers are Alexander Kim and Lisa Hale. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, assistant professor and director of harm reduction research in the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Original score written and performed by Sam Fenn, James Ash, Kai Paulson, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and from our Patreon supporters. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is crackdownpod.com. New episodes drop on the last Wednesday of every month. Be safe. Keep six. Got the good watery hot chocolate. I don't know what people would say it was water. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, it was hot. I'll be right back. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, much appreciated. You have been listening to a sided media production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.